Let's rise for the reading of scripture. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guest of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grains. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is unlawful only for the priest, or is, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath." Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You may be seated. So we are in a series called Doing What Jesus Does. And this series is going through the Gospel of Mark. And the reason we've chosen Mark is because Mark is a gospel full of action scenes where Jesus is doing thing after thing after thing. And each time that Jesus does something that surprises the people around him, it's informative, it's instructive to us. 
It shows us a piece of what Jesus wants from us if we're going to do what he does. Now, because of the nature of the series, we've had to tackle some very practical um, subjects so far. Last week, we talked about evangelism. Now, I know that's everyone's favorite subject, and I challenged you to, at your lunch tables, to, uh, to share your stories with one another. And I know that some of you did that, and I'm thankful. The week before that, we talked some about politics. Now, I know that this made some of you very uncomfortable, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to clarify a few things based on some feedback that we received. One of those things is this. You've heard us say a couple of times during this series that the kingdom of God is going to collide with any kingdom on earth. There are going to be times that the two collide. And in those places, when American politics and the kingdom of God collide, I think it is absolutely appropriate and right for us to talk about it in church. But in case I communicated anything else to you, I do want to clarify, I do consider myself a patriot. I love my country. I think that I live in an amazing place and I'm thankful for it every day. Our ability to be here freely, to worship our Lord without fear, is a remarkable thing. And when I read the, the history of the time leading up to the founding of our country, the ideas that were present, many of them that came from the Christian faith, ideas like liberty and justice, of equality of all people, I think that America is a truly amazing place. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think anyone else here does either. But if I've communicated anything else, I do want to clarify that. And the reason I want to do that is this. Two weeks ago was not the last hard sermon we're going to have. In fact, we're going to have another hard one today. And if you've been sitting here with any unresolved frustration or tension, I wanted to, I wanted to clear that out so that you didn't have kind of frustration build as we talked about hard subjects a couple of times so close together. Now, one of these themes in our series, like I said before, has been the collision of kingdoms that happens when we truly decide to do what Jesus does. Now, this was something that the first followers of Jesus experienced over and over again, is they saw that following him was going to put them in the position of having to choose between their allegiance to him, Jesus, their Lord, and their allegiance to something else. Now, sometimes choosing the Lord was easy because the choice was against something that they didn't really care about. I don't think they struggled to choose Jesus over Caesar. But when it was about something that was good, when they had to choose between their Lord and something else that was good, and it was a question of which came first, I think that was a struggle. And it's that kind of struggle that we're going to be talking about today. So in our passage this morning were four stories. And for the sake of time, I want to look at each of them, but I want to look at each of them quickly. Because it's what they have in common that I want to look at and talk about. And that leads us to our single sentence sermon summary this morning, which is this. Disciples of Jesus must train our hearts to choose him before anything else. I'll say that again. Disciples of Jesus must train our hearts to choose him before anything else. 
In the first story, we saw Levi, the tax collector. He was a Jew, but his countrymen considered him a sinner among sinners. Not only was he an official of a corrupt government, he was a part of a profession that was known for dishonesty, for cruelty, and for extortion of people who were already very poor. Despite his distance from the Lord, Levi heard Jesus teaching one day. And on that day, his life was changed. You see, Jesus had this way of truly seeing into people, of truly knowing them. And as he walked by, he turned to this corrupt, hated, dishonest, greedy sinner. And he said, follow me. Two simple words that changed Levi's life forever. And I think it must have been a scandal. I mean, can you imagine a crowd of good religious Jews coming around to hear Jesus speaking? A rabbi. And being invited to become a disciple of a rabbi was a tremendous honor. Becoming a rabbi was the highest thing that you could do in Jewish society. For a rabbi to say to you, follow me. I'm going to make you like me. Was amazing. And Jesus walked all the way through the crowd of otherwise perfectly respectable people, went to the worst among them, and said, you, follow me. That was bad, but it got worse. I think from that day on, Jesus would always be the rabbi who let a traitor be one of his disciples. But then he goes further. Levi throws a party as one does when he decides to follow Jesus. And he invites all of his friends to come to the party. And they do. They come. And his friends are not the kind of people that good religious people should be spending time with. These are not people also considering following Jesus. These are people that are on the outs with the faith. And there were laws, purity laws, about who rabbis were allowed to sit with, to be with, to share a table with. Now that might strike us as odd, but I think we can understand a little bit, right? When a young person goes to a party and there's a whole lot of unseemly people at that party, there's part of us that says, that's not right. Or if you were to look at a restaurant and see a priest sitting next to a prostitute, that might feel odd. Right? That just doesn't go together. Well, that that feeling had been put into rabbinic law, and Jesus was not to be there. And these were laws that Jesus decided to break. And his message was clear. If you want to be his disciple, you must be willing to choose him over your traditions. Now, I can almost hear the objections of the people at the time. Why can't I practice these purity laws and follow Jesus? Why can't I I, I care about purity and follow Jesus? And I think he would say you can. But in his wisdom, he knew that purity is a good thing, that keeping oneself from being polluted by sin and death is a good thing. But for Jesus, people are not pollution. Human beings are not sins. 
and he refused to shun them. For Jesus, purity laws might be good things, but they're out of place. They're out of place when you use them to alienate other people who are made in the image of God. And so then the second story. It's about fasting. You see, rabbis and their followers, as well as other religious groups, people who took their faith really seriously, had this practice of fasting two times a week. Now, here's what that would look like. In this time, most people ate two meals a day. We're just going to call them, for simplicity's sake, lunch and dinner. They would eat two meals a day. And if you were going to fast, say, on Sunday night, you would skip dinner. And then on Monday morning, you would skip lunch. And then on Monday night, you would eat dinner. So you'd go a a day, evening to evening, without eating. That's what fasting looked like. Now, this wasn't a command in the Old Testament. They weren't ordered by the Lord to do this. But it was a well-known practice. It's what rabbis and their followers did. It was expected. It was a sign of holiness, of taking your faith seriously. You fast twice a week. And then Jesus said, it's out of place. He wasn't saying that fasting is bad, because it's not. But when the Son of God, when the Messiah, the King, is walking among you, it's a time to celebrate. Jesus isn't saying that fasting is bad. He's saying that it was out of place when you're celebrating the Creator's presence among you. And the message was clear. If you want to be his disciple, you must be willing to choose him over your spiritual practices. And then come the last two stories, both about the Sabbath. Now, you've probably heard that Sabbath laws were a little over the top in Jesus' day, and they were. But I want you to understand why. The core of it was because God took the Sabbath very, very seriously. There are several verses like this one, but I wanted to show you one. Exodus 35, verses 2 and 3. The Lord said to, shared with Moses, who shared with the people, For six days work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not even light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. There was the death penalty for violating the Sabbath. The the Lord took it very, very seriously. And the reason for this is that the Sabbath was sacred time. In the same way that the Israelites were supposed to give a portion of their food to the Lord as a sacrifice, they were supposed to give a portion of their time to him as well. And this set them apart. It was a reminder of the relief of their rescue from Egypt. It was an imitation of God's rest after he created. And it was utterly unique among the nations. A rest, a gift from him to them to remember him one day every week. And this became a fundamental part of their national identity. The Sabbath was theirs. It's what made them distinct. So they were going to be sure and do it right. 
And so that's how they got all their rules. Because if you want to obey when God says don't work, you need to know what counts as work, right? So religious leaders, they created a list, both from scripture and from daily life, of things that counted as work. If we wanted to, I briefly considered having us try to create a list here of things we would, we would call work on, the re on a regular day. But I think what we'd find is the list would just become so very long. And that's what happened here. As time went on, the list got more and more complicated. But for many people, while the Sabbath was a burden, while it was hard for them to obey, it was one that they were glad to carry. It was their privilege. The Sabbath set them apart. It represented who they are. It was more than a practice, it was a symbol, and it mattered deeply to them. So that's, the, that's what's happening on the Sabbath. And then we get these two stories right next to each other of Jesus breaking the Sabbath law. In the first story, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they're walking, they pick some of the grain. Now, one of the Sabbath laws was that you were not to eat any food on the Sabbath that was not prepared the day before. So making or picking food on the Sabbath was against the law. It was considered work and it was forbidden. And then in the second story, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand is there. Now it was considered work to heal on the Sabbath as well. And I don't just mean supernatural healings. Those were very, very rare. But it was against the law even to, to wrap and bandage to apply ointments to a wound, to do the kinds of things that would cause a person to heal. But this then also included any idea of supernatural healings. It was considered work, and it was against the law. This was so serious for them that while some rabbis made an exception for a person's life being in danger, some didn't. Some said if your life is in danger on the Sabbath, then you can be healed. A doctor can help you. Someone can help you. But many of them thought of it this way. God has commanded us not to work on the Sabbath, and he's in charge. So if he wants you to live, he'll heal you. Or he'll give you the strength to survive so that someone can help you tomorrow. They put it in God's hands. And while that strikes us, we can, we can understand, but we see that as a very unhealthy practice, right? It shows how seriously they took the Sabbath. Many of them, even to save your life, felt like God had commanded them to not work. But for Jesus, the purpose of the Sabbath was completely different. The Sabbath, like the purity practices and like the fasting, was an act of worship. These were all good things. But Jesus was showing that Sabbath laws were out of place when they became oppressive or when they got in the way of doing good. The message was clear. If you want to be his disciple, you must be willing to choose him even over your sacred symbols. And then at the end of the story is this line. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We read that and I think we find it kind of shocking, 
right? I mean, why? We just got four stories in a row of him breaking some rules, but are they really going to want to put someone to death over, over some purity or fasting or Sabbath differences? The answer is yes, and I think we should be able to understand. In Bible study, one of the things we have to realize is how far we are from the Bible stories we're looking at. They were so long ago that there are almost always things that we miss because we cannot put ourselves in the story and we cannot experience it like they would have. See, I don't think it's hard to understand at all the murderous reaction by the religious leaders. It's wrong. It was sinful. I'm not saying otherwise. But when the things that matter most to you are threatened, you're likely to get a little protective. And we all have so many of these things that are important to us. We all have these affections and loyalties and commitments inside. We all hold on to a variety of them. And we try to keep them in harmony. And sometimes they can make life complicated. And so when someone brings conflict into them that didn't need to be there or that wasn't there before, we tend to lash out. But here's the thing about discipleship. Part of what these stories teach us is that when we follow Jesus, there will always be a collision of kingdoms. When the, when the world around us, including the things we value and love, runs headlong against the wall of our allegiance to Jesus, we have a choice to make. And if we're going to do what he does then we can't put our heads down and pretend that nothing is happening. We need to choose him. Now, none of these situations and these stories hit us the way they would have hit the Jews in the first century. And so I spent some time in the last couple of weeks trying to find a tradition that we might all feel attached to, that might help us to understand the way that they experience this, that, that would be hard if Jesus asked us to let it go. I wanted something that, even if we weren't personally attached to it, we could really understand the attachment that other people have. Now, Pastor Ben, the deacons, and I feel like there is one tradition that can produce for us the kind of conflict that these stories produced for the first century Jews. And I want to talk about it because I think it'll help us to really get down to the question. In my heart, am I ready to choose my allegiance to Jesus over everything else. Now, as I go forward, I want to be honest. Some of you are going to get angry. Like I said before, when you introduce conflict into the affections a person has in their heart, it's hard. And if you find yourself really angry, I want you to hear a few things first. I want you to know that I love you and that in spite of your anger, I'm asking for you to trust me to hear me out, because I think by the end you will be less angry than you were at the beginning. So here we go. As you look around the sanctuary, you'll notice something. Each and every church, including ours, takes incredible care to make sure that every single thing in our sanctuary is intended to direct our attention to God. You think about the cross. It's hidden behind the screen, but I promise it's there. We don't move it. When, uh, when the screen comes down. The cross reminds us of our Lord. It's elevated. We look up, right? Even the way that the room and the building is constructed, the bigness 
of it reminds us that we are part of something grand. The way that our stage is set up with the podiums. This podium originally was bigger because the idea was that the preacher had some special communication with the Lord to give to the people. The way that our our choir stands off to the side instead of in the front to make sure that they're not the center of attention so that the center of attention always goes to the Lord. Even the Bibles and the hymnals in our pews are full of things intended, obviously, to direct our attention and our hearts to the Lord. Every single symbol in our sanctuary points to God except for one. Some of you will probably be surprised to hear that we have an American flag in our sanctuary. You may have never noticed it before. It's over here in the corner, and it is the only symbol in our sanctuary that points to something other than God. Now, I want to be clear about something. As I understand it, this flag was donated in memory of loved ones lost in the armed services. In addition to being an American flag, it's also a reminder of those who gave their lives in service of our country. In other words, it's a good thing, and I'm not saying otherwise. But I have a question. If Jesus was here, and if he asked you to move the flag out of the sanctuary, would you? Some of you here would have no problem. You may not have even realized we had a flag in the sanctuary before today. That's something that I've discovered in the past few weeks. Not everyone even knew it was there. And you wouldn't have a problem taking it out. But many of you feel differently. Some of you are ranging a spectrum right now from being very uncomfortable to being absolutely furious with me for bringing this up in a sermon. And then I imagine that there's some of you who are attached to the flag being in the sanctuary, but aren't bothered at all. And you're not bothered because you don't think there's any reason that Jesus or anyone else would be uncomfortable with the flag being here. But I want to be completely honest with you this morning. I'm uncomfortable with the flag in the sanctuary, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you why. First, It's important that you know I'm not going to end the sermon today with a call to remove the flag. That's not happening. It will still be here next week. Those aren't the stakes of this today. And it's important also that you understand that this isn't about a lack of respect for the flag or for the brave men and women that this particular flag was given in memory of. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You see, whatever else the flag represents, it also represents a country the United States of America. It's a country that I love, though it's imperfect, and it's an earthly kingdom, and it often collides with the kingdom of God. The practice of having flags and church sanctuaries in our country began around World War I, Or at least that's when it started to become common. Sometimes it was from a desire to remember to pray for our country in times of need. Sometimes it was from patriotism. People wanted the flag in the sanctuary as a reminder that they were Americans and that they were proud of that. Still other times it was the result of outside pressure. Churches with German backgrounds especially were often forced by their communities 
to display the flag as a sign of commitment to the United States. There are these awful stories of pastors during church being attacked or overwhelmed by crowds from the outside, demanding that they genuflect and kiss the American flag before they be allowed to continue their church service. In fact, there are stories of pastors or churches that said no, that they would not genuflect, and their churches were burned down. Now, you might wonder, in those moments, why not just display the flag? If they're going to burn your church, just display the flag. Well, there's two reasons, I think. The first reason why a person might not want to display the flag is that the American flag code is very specific, and it's difficult to meet in a church. The flag code is clear that when the flag is displayed in a sanctuary, it's supposed to occupy the position of honor directly to the right of the preacher. It's, supposed to, it's specifically not supposed to be put off into a corner, and any other flag that's with it is supposed to take a lesser position, either on the preacher's left or behind. So what that means is that if we were to honor the, the flag appropriately, we would need to move it right here. This is where it would go. And the Christian flag could not have the same prominence. We would have to, we would have to be willing to display it over and above the Christian flag. Now, the reason for this in the flag code is clear. Displaying the American flag is supposed to be about allegiance. And it expects to be, the America expects to be, the country that receives our highest allegiance. And that leads me to the second reason why a church might decide not to display a flag. When we come together to worship, it is to stand together as members of a kingdom and proclaim our allegiance to our King and our Lord over and above everything else. Now, there are references to this all over the New Testament. I want to share two verses that make this pretty clear. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, our first citizenship primarily is as a citizen of the kingdom. It doesn't compete. We're not half and half. We are kingdom citizens first and foremost. And then Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 says this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. This is the, the passage in Hebrews 11 that lists all those heroes of the faith. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. When we come into this sanctuary on Sunday mornings, it is to proclaim the lordship of Jesus and to celebrate the coming of his kingdom. 
a kingdom that will collide with every single earthly kingdom already in place, including the United States of America. And while I love my country and I want it to be the best it can possibly be, I, can, I think that we can honestly say that Christians ought to see themselves that way, as lovers of their country, responsible to make it the best that it can possibly be. While I love my country, I love her a lot less than I love Jesus. And my American citizenship is second to my kingdom citizenship. And I don't think anyone here would say that they feel otherwise. I want us to honor the flag, but I don't think that we do that when we bring her somewhere she's not supposed to be. I would love to see her displayed downstairs in the entryway or in our flag room. And I'd love to see her in a place where she's out in the open and in a position of honor. Because I think we do both her and our Lord a disservice by having her here. Because when we come in here, we are worshiping a king whose kingdom stretches all over the world and throughout history. We're joining with other Christians throughout the world, most of whom are not Americans, to celebrate Jesus. And we're bringing the the symbol of another kingdom with us when we do. Now here's why I just shared all of that. There was a point. If you're furious or you're really uncomfortable with the idea of moving the flag, I think you should ask why it would be so bad to have her displayed somewhere else in the building. Why does she need to be here? Now, I'm not Jesus, and I'm not going to move the flag, but if he asked you, would you be willing to? Now, if you're one of those people who doesn't have a deep connection to the flag, then, then I'd ask the same thing about whatever your allegiance, whatever other allegiance does pull at your heart. We all have them. We chose this because I think for so many of us, this is sensitive. It's deep. It's, a, it's an affection that's mixed in with all the rest, and it's hard. But if he asked, would you submit to him and put your allegiance to him first? Now, for us as a church, your pastors feel like moving this flag would be the right thing to do, but we will not be the ones to do it because we do not want to be divisive or force a division in the body. But I think that I can say I want to challenge us this way. We as individuals need to ask, are we, like the Pharisees, connected to such a, a symbol of our national identity in a way that we are unwilling to acknowledge that it could be out of place, that it might be a disordered affection. Can we, as individuals, look ourselves in the heart, be honest, and acknowledge that perhaps we struggle with seeing our love of country, withholding our love of country too tightly? Can we as a church begin a conversation about it and anything else that draws or competes with our allegiance to Jesus? And if we decide that this or something else is the right thing to do, can we be courageous enough to have the uncomfortable conversations and commit newly, freshly 
to holding our allegiance to Jesus over and above anything else. The sermon summary was that disciples of Jesus must train our hearts to choose him before anything else. That word train is on purpose. It's not something that happens on accident, and it's never pleasant. It's never easy. To train our hearts to choose him before anything else, we will constantly collide again and again, both with things that we know aren't good. Those are, those are easy for us to decide. They're hard for us to let go of. We know we need to let go of our sins. We just struggle with the, with the letting go. The harder pieces of this are the things that are good, but collide with the kingdom when we bring them somewhere they're not supposed to be. So my challenge to you today is to train your heart to choose him before anything else. To realize that discipleship is a hard thing. It requires commitment and allegiance to him first and foremost. Pray with me. Father God, you are so good. And we praise you today. We thank you, Lord, for the country that we are in. We thank you for the freedom that we have. We thank you especially for those young men and women who have served their country and died in defense of that freedom. But Lord, we do ask you to reveal to us if we, like those who were in Jesus' time, have things in our heart that compete with our allegiance to you, help us to see them. When it's uncomfortable, Lord, give us courage to look and make changes anyway. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. And turn to him number 271.